Is there a better model for doctors when they deal with pharmaceutical representatives? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. William Gallanter. Dr. Gallanter is the Medical Director of the Clinical Information Systems and also the Chair of the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, both at the University of Illinois Medical School in Chicago. Thank you, Dr. Gallanter, for joining us. Thanks for having me. To begin with, certainly this ongoing conflict or tension that exists between doctors and pharmaceutical representatives continues to be looked at intellectually as well as in the news media. Where are we going in this area? Sad to say that much of this is political, and I think things have changed a little bit recently with the knowledge of some blockbuster drugs found not to be particularly useful. I think the FDA is getting a little bit stronger But I think that one of the things that we're going to start doing is try to use some of the money that the pharmaceutical industry is using for advertisement and have them actually do studies with it. And the type of studies I think that they need to do are stronger studies that show safety and stronger studies that show efficacy so that we can really see if the new drugs that they're putting on the market are actually something useful for our taxpayers. Well, you bring up an interesting word, efficacy. Is there enough going on with comparative efficacy to warrant the explosion in new drugs? I think there is in in, in certain fields. Oncology, I think, has really done an excellent job. These drugs are very dangerous, and we try not to give patients uh, new cocktails and new types of radiation therapy unless we can find that there's some benefit to the patients. But certain medical problems like diabetes and hypertension and hyperlipidemia and stroke dementia. I think the studies on comparative efficacy are somewhat lacking. I think there's a lot of money to be had in these fields, and I think that maybe people don't really want to know the answer to find out what is the best way to treat the disease. Well, then do you think that the FDA or the NIH or other governmental agencies should be involved at a very early stage before things are being marketed? Oh, I absolutely do, and I think they're getting more and more involved. One of the groups that I do some work for is called the Agency for Healthcare and Quality and Research, AHRQ, and one of the things that they're very interested in is comparative efficacy. What I want to know is when I treat a patient with diabetes, I want to know exactly what medicines to put my patients on to get the best outcome. At the moment, for instance, for diabetes, the American Diabetic Association for Type 2 Diabetes tells me the first drug that I should start on, and after that, it's all a matter of taste. And once it becomes a matter of taste, marketing becomes extremely effective. Shouldn't we be looking at IRBs? Shouldn't part of their role be, what's so unique about this prescription? What is so unique about this new drug? We've seen, certainly, that there often is conflicts in IRBs, that some don't have policies for conflict or don't even define conflict. So while we began by possibly talking about hospital pharmacy representatives, Doesn't the problem really begin much further in the pathway of drugs? I think so. I don't do a lot of clinical trials, but I think one of the big problems is that a lot of money comes in through the pharmaceutical industry, and that runs a lot of academia. And I think people really need to think a little bit harder about what is an ethical study. Is a question really a worthwhile question? Is a question really something that we need to answer in order to expose our patients to risk? So I do think the IRB is a very important part of this. You know, IRBs, as you say, are an important part of this. Certainly, I have read where the very fact that members of IRBs have contact with industry is a benefit, that it isn't all bad. How would you comment on this? 
Well, I'm not so sure about the role of the IRB, per se, in terms of the conflict with industry. I think one of the things that I feel is that the expert committees that make the guidelines on diseases, they all seem to be conflicted. And that's not true in every country. And I'm not sure if that's what you were getting at or not. Yes, that there are certainly people on IRBs who, a recent article in the New England Journal says that there are people on IRBs who actually look at various drugs made by companies that are in competition with whom they're receiving some kind of compensation. And this isn't always identified. That's what I was really talking about. And if something like that is, is going on, how can I begin to evaluate hospital representatives if further in the process something questionable is going on? Yeah, I personally think that the IRBs themselves really should not be conflicted at all. There's no way to clean, even if you admit that you have conflict, that does not make it clean or sanitized. I think as Jerome Kasserer said, you cannot sanitize a relationship just because you admit the conflict. So I, I don't think that the IRBs should be strongly involved with the pharmaceutical industries. You know, the pharmacy industry has a Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America code, which isn't, if you look at it, that much different from the AMA's code of dealing with this very same subject of compensation to physicians by pharmaceutical companies. If we have a written standard, what is the problem then with implementing it? Well, I think the written standard is very old, and I think we have a philosophy in the U.S. that for a expert committee. What I want to look at when I'm treating a disease is, since I don't have the time to read all the papers, and I would like to say that I probably would recommend not listening to the representatives in terms of the papers they're giving me to look at the disease, I would like to have some gold standard group tell me how to treat the disease so that if I'm too busy to read all the papers myself, I can do a good job for my patients. I would hope that that group that tells me how to treat the disease is not conflicted. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Gallanter, who is chairman of the Pharmacy and Therapeutic Committee at the University of Illinois Medical Center. Uh, I want to thank him very much for joining us. You know, where do you go for information, not meaning to be self-serving about the radio industry, and I'm not even giving you a sandwich to eat, but I'd like to know, is this possibly an avenue where the pharmaceutical industry might use a media to get information out that is peer-reviewed and then have access to call back a particular station, not necessarily ours, although we are always open to criticisms and comments, and, and find out, where did you get this information? Can you give me your peer review? Can you give me your bibliography on what was said during that conversation, even the conversation you and I are having today? I think that whenever a conversation is had that's meant for other clinicians who are going to make clinical decisions about patients, I draw the line and consider clinical care something different. If I, I don't want to talk about a particular brand, you know, I might have the hots for a Mustang. If the Mustang salesman can talk me into a Mustang and that's not the best car for me, I don't consider that a terrible crime. But I think when you give your patients a medication, I think there's an assumption that that would be the best medication to give the patient. So I think references always should be available. I would argue that radio, like any other media, I don't think that would be a good source of information from the pharmaceutical industry because I think the pharmaceutical industry comes in with a very strong bias and inherently they are not going to discuss articles that do not promote what they're trying to sell. 
there is a possibility if you had some kind of peer review of radio and pharmaceutical industry was not your sponsors, I think it might be really worthwhile. But I apologize. I, I very much agree with you. If the pharmaceutical industry is not the sponsor, I think radio, like any other media, would be an excellent source of information. Like we're talking about, say, a new beta blocker and sure, somebody sure. is telling us this one is better than another one. Being able to respond to him, having done some kind of peer review, might be worthwhile. But going back to your kind of area of expertise, what is the medical schools doing to prepare young doctors to deal with this whole conflict? Again, a recent article said that over 98% of doctors who responded said they did have some contact with the pharmaceutical industry. Most of it had to do with meals, and some of it had to do with samples. But what is a medical school to do for their young learners when faced with this problem? Well, I think we need to make policies. It's quite interesting that many medical schools don't in the first place have policies. So I think all the medical schools need to have policies. They need to have policies for the undergraduate medical students. They need to have policies for the pharmacy students. In many states, number one, we have to face the fact that pharmacists actually propose a lot of the pharmacotherapy that doctors use. And in some states, they're free to use that therapy even without the permission of the doctor. And even in the states where they're not, they're the ones that are pushing us into drugs. And nurse practitioners, advanced practice nurses also prescribe. So the first thing, I think we realize that this is a problem that's true for nursing schools, pharmacy schools, medical schools. So we need to have policies for all of those schools. Then we need to have policies for graduate medical education, our medical residents. And then we need to have policies for our faculty and the way our institutions behave, because I think modeling is extremely important. And I think if you train at an institution where your faculty members are all, quote-unquote, on the take by the pharmaceutical industry, you see that they're friends with the representatives, which, again, is nothing wrong inherently. They're eating all the meals. They're taking all the gifts. They're promoting the drugs that the representatives are there to promote. I think it sets a bad example for our students at all different levels. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've heard it said, and I think even in an article you've written, there are three kinds of lies that Benjamin Disraeli felt. There's lies, there's damned lies, and there's statistics. So most of the material we're getting in our offices, would you say, is definitely biased? I would say the materials that are given in the offices is definitely biased. Would you say then we're better off having no information at all? I don't think we should take any materials from pharmaceutical representatives. And so our searches should be done by each of us individually. No, I think that... Sometimes doctors are much too busy to do that to be realistic. I would say that I'm a primary care doctor, so I treat a certain degree of diseases as compared to other fields. Different fields treat different diseases. But I'd say any disease where you're about to use a new drug for the first time, I think it is your responsibility to look in the literature and decide if that really is an intelligent decision or not to make. So I think that I don't need to read about every drug that comes on the market, but when it gets to the point where I'm about to give that drug to one of my patients, I should know about that drug. Now, I can get that information either through the primary literature, through expert guidelines, through comparative trials that look at that drug versus an older drug. I think I need to look at good literature to try to find that information. I can't make the standard that I need to read all the papers on a drug because some drugs come on the market. One of the ways that drugs make themselves look better is by having more and more trials. 
So when I give lectures on a drug, the first time I talk about the drug, and I don't want to say the name of a drug, but a drug that I was talking about in mid-2007, there were 47 papers, and then I gave the lecture again three months later, and there was 97 papers, and three months after that, there was 157 papers. Obviously, I couldn't read all those papers. I can count them up on a computer. So it is not the responsibility of doctors to read all the papers about all the drugs that they use. I think that would be really an impossible standard. But I do think looking at less biased guidelines, expert panels, and textbooks, if you're going to look at one source, that's going to be a better source than a paper that's given to you by a pharmaceutical representative. Well, we've been discussing today the very complex issue of dealing with the pharmaceutical industry in our day-to-day practices. We sometimes have a meal with them. They sometimes give us samples that we can utilize. What can we do in the future to hopefully improve and make this relationship more ethical and better for our patients. I want to thank Dr. William Gallanter, who's been our guest today. Dr. Gallanter is chairman of the Pharmaceutical and Therapeutics Committee and also the medical director of the Clinical Information Systems at the University of Illinois Medical School in Chicago. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you have comments or suggestions, please call us at 888-MDXM-157. Thank you for listening.